Hey everyone, Abraham here. We decided we didn't want to clog up your feed with too many episodes right in a row, so I'm releasing this one a week late, so you have them spaced out the way that we normally do. We're going to release the next one, planning to release the next one on this Friday, and then we'll get back on track on Wednesdays the following week. So this is the second part of our hearing episode. We're going to discuss more about how to treat hearing loss and more discussion about the psychological effects of hearing loss and deafness. So I hope you enjoy. Here's part two on how hearing works and hearing loss. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hey everyone, this is Abraham, so this is Why We Do What We Do. Last time we were here, you got to hear us talk about how hearing works in an interview with Dr. Vance and Dr. Greenhouse. There's going to be a sound wave in the environment. That a sound goes into the ear canal and the ear canal is specifically built to be a certain diameter around because what happens is as the sound goes in, as the ear canal gets narrower, it increases the volume of the incoming signal. So these sound waves are going to reach the ear canal. They're going to resonate through the canal and hit the tympanic membrane, which is our eardrum. When it hits the middle ear, there are three little bones in the middle ear. The eardrum is just a membrane of skin, and what it does is it vibrates, and it pushes those little bones. The malleus, the incus, and the stapes, which is the same thing as the stirrup, is attached to the oval and round window of the cochlea, which is the third part of your hearing. Our cochlea is actually engraved in our temporal bone when we are born. So it is actually this engraving of a two and a half turn snail shape organ and then it has a membrane and fluid filled with it. And inside the inner ear, there are little, what we call hair cells, because they kind of look like a hair waving around in the fluid. Now that hasn't finished how we actually hear though, because what happens after the sound has gone through the cochlea is the sound gets transferred to the eighth auditory nerve. But it's going to send it up the brain, essentially up to the auditory cortex. One ear is not going to one side of the brain. One ear is going to this side of the brain, crossing. It's amazing. So you need both ears to rely on getting it everywhere in the brain. You have multiple auditory centers in the brain. We also talked last time about how any part of that process that breaks down results in hearing loss. And so therefore there are different kinds of hearing loss. There is conductive hearing loss, which is anything that's outer or middle ear related. Think if the sound can't conduct through my system, I cannot hear. And then there is sensory neural hearing loss. Sensory neural hearing loss is inner ear hearing loss. That's going to be from um, aging, genetics, noise exposure, medications. That is permanent. It is irreversible. There is no surgery to fix it. But you could then also get an ear infection. So then you have what's called a mixed hearing loss. It's going to be part conductive because if we can get that fluid out of your ear, you're going to hear better to a degree, but you're still going to have some underlying nerve hearing loss. So where we left off last time was in a discussion about earwax and the role that it plays and some considerations around it and also how to deal with excessive amounts of earwax. So Dr. Vance and Dr. Greenhouse had some additional considerations and comments that they provided about 
earwax and treatment for earwax. And then the other thing... So just to remind you, this voice that you're hearing is Dr. Kathy Vance. Is You can get an earwax softening drop that comes with a, a little bulb syringe, and you can irrigate your ears out at home doing that. If you're going to do that, there's two things that I recommend. Remember that the ear canal is a little tunnel with a membrane of skin at the end of it. So you don't want to shoot water directly at your eardrum because you can rupture it. And the other thing that you do not want to do is use cold or hot water because it can make you violently dizzy. So you always want to use room temperature water and I recommend that you shoot the bulb towards the top of the ear canal so that it kind of washes back, kind of slides down the eardrum and then comes back out. So uh, a lot of people use those ear candles. And yes. so what is the evidence behind those and what's the recommendation and, and how are those supposed to work? They're an absolute joke. Okay, no ear candling, please. And this is Dr. Brandy Greenhouse. Ear candling does nothing. The research shows literally it does nothing. I actually had a lady about 10 years or so ago bring me an ear candle. Uh, I asked her to because I really was curious about them. I've even looked in people's ears who said they ear candled the night before and they were completely occluded with wax. So I'm like, well, the ear candle did nothing. And so she brought in an ear candle for me. I looked in her ear. We did the ear candle and I looked in her ear. The same amount of wax was in her ear afterwards as before. So we took the ear candle and we opened it and there was earwax tinted candle wax in there. It wasn't earwax in it, the kennel. It was not earwax. But it looked it was supposed to look like earwax. Exactly. I see. So as far as I'm concerned, there's a total waste of money and it's not very common, but there have been a couple of instances where the ear, the wax has melted down into the ear and, and burnt a hole in the eardrum. That so is my fear. That's that is the, a, another good reason not to do oh it. Oh god. Um and then just part of the philosophy of like, all right, thinking about how much air pressure would have to be created in the ear to actually suck out earwax that is supposed to be clinging to the uh, the ear. Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a viscous substance that's sticky, right? If that vacuum was powerful enough to suck out that earwax, it'd probably also be powerful enough to suck the eardrum right out of your head. Exactly. You feel your eardrum moving too. I mean, we have a yeah. suction machine to get earwax out. And I assure you, it is much stronger than an ear candle. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know we are right. professionals using this device we're not, we're not gonna let anybody take a vacuum to their ear right That's just, so yeah you're completely right there's no there's no evidence to show that it can actually do what it says it's doing and it can be dangerous right exactly you know, i have a ton of hair where my biggest fear would be like that fire anywhere near my head i'm just imagining like one piece falling into my hair and then i'm on fire i mean just really no because it can't pull wax out of your, no. Just don't even risk burning your hair off with ear candling. I don't like it. There's no research to show that it in fact does anything. So really not a good idea. It's just a waste of money. All right, now there are several other important topics to cover in how we think about this psychologically, but generally the reason that we are talking about this at all is that hearing is one of the five main ways of interacting with the universe around us and the environment around us. And therefore it makes up a significant portion of the learning and experiences that we gain and can have a profound impact when lost. So it is not to say that hearing loss means that you cannot have a meaningful life. You absolutely can, but that's why it is an important and interesting topic for us in particular. And especially when you have spent most of your life having hearing as a tool for interpreting the world around you, the loss of that tool can be very psychologically impactful. 
If this tool is lost early on in life, many people develop new ways of compensating for that loss, finding ways to correct it, or find ways to deal with it in a manner that works for them. And they often live happy, productive, normal lives and simply don't perceive the world with all of the same features as with hearing, but not in a way that makes their life any less rich or fulfilling. But as I said, for those who have used hearing as a tool to perceive and interact with the world around them, that tool means access to many extremely valuable features of life and things that people learn to perceive as being very valuable to them. And so for most people who spend their life with their hearing intact, this is one of the primary tools for developing and maintaining social relationships. So humans are pretty social creatures, right? And when we lose the function of, of a part of our body that allows us to have these interactions, then many people feel isolated um, and it's almost like a solitary confinement, but indefinitely. As hearing loss progresses, as far as how it affects people, it's incredibly isolating. Uh, I would say what I've been most surprised by is how personal hearing loss is. Um, people cry about it all the time. Um, you don't realize how much it connects you to people. I'll have people tell me all the time, I don't like to go to parties anymore because I can't hear what anybody's saying. I don't like to go out to eat anymore because I can't hear what the waitress is saying to me. I withdraw at family gatherings. So they get very isolated from their family and friends, which is really sad. It can make just regular things more difficult, like you going into those environments and you can't you know, localize sound. Work can be a problem. I have tons of patients who, okay, I do fine when I'm you know, one-on-one -on -one with someone, but I go to meetings with 30 people. Well, they can't hear in that room if they're at the back of the table and the presenter isn't a very clear speaker or whatever. That's, it, you know, I've had people tell me it affects their jobs, their marriages, their family life. It's very, very personal, I would say. Um, and they just, they just feel like they're no longer able to communicate with family and friends. And I can't begin to imagine how, what a horrible feeling that would be. I mean, that's just, that's got to be a very negative emotion for pretty much anybody that they're feeling withdrawn from because of their hearing loss. So yes, the number one joke I always get is, oh, I just don't listen to my wife or, oh, I just don't listen to my husband, but I hear fine. But then you kind of dive deeper and you can tell they're fighting about it. It's, you know, a, a source of frustration in relationships because one person can't hear and the other is frustrated by repeating. Um, it's going to affect your quality of life. You're going to be frustrated. Spouses and family and friends are going to be frustrated. You're going to go to environments you used to enjoy. Uh, restaurants are a perfect example. Um, maybe when you were 20 years old, you could go to a loud bar or restaurant and, you know, You'd, you'd be fine. You could hear your friends and shout and, you know, get your messages across. As you get older and you don't process sound as well and you have hearing loss, you're going to start to avoid those places. You're going to say, well, the last time I was there, I couldn't understand anything. So I just sat there by myself and, and withdrew. Um, that's when it's a problem. You know, people kind of make jokes at first to make light of it, but it can actually really isolate people, which makes total sense. If you can't hear and you can't participate in that, you know, part of life, you're going to live a more you know, isolated life, which is not good. It's not good for cognition. It's not good for aging. So, I mean, that's the, the emotional side of it for sure. So we wondered, is there any correlation between hearing loss and any kind of mental health disorder or mental health disease? Oh, absolutely. And can lead to depression and all sorts of other emotional, you know, things that, that, are caused by feeling isolated and left out of, of discussions. Depression, isolation, and dementia. 
dementia. So people with uh, hearing loss are more likely to um, have uh, dementia. There is a strong correlation. So we try not to scare people because we we can't yet with research. Um, you know, people say, oh, I've heard hearing loss causes dementia. Well, no, no, no. We, we can't say that. That is not true. However, there have been studies that have come out. I think 2016 was a very interesting one where they did um, several MRIs on patients. I think they were in their 70s and 80s, treated and untreated hearing loss, and they were showing parts of the brain where there should be auditory receptors that were gone. You will never get that back as you get older. And so then further research is showing, I think it was a 30% increase of patients with untreated hearing loss as they age also showed signs of dementia. The other thing that's very interesting that we've discovered in just the last few years about it is that in your auditory cortexes that are in both of your temporal lobes, they have a direct link to your language center and your language center has a direct link to your memory. So there's a direct correlation now between hearing loss and dementia, especially in the elderly. So that's another reason not to ignore your hearing loss and to do something about it sooner rather than later. Because if the auditory cortexes are stimulated via amplification, then you can uh, absolutely make it so that those auditory cortexes stay as healthy as possible, leading to a healthier brain overall. What about how my hearing loss affects people's lives speaking from um, about, especially people who either are born with a hearing impairment or uh, acquire one at a very young age? Shockingly, those patients do amazing <laughs> if they if they treat it. That just goes to the brain's plasticity and, and ability to, um, you know, acclimate to, to situations. So, I mean, for, I'll give you a great example. If someone is born deaf, sometimes that is um, a choice to stay that way, right? There's a deaf culture and they, they see that as I was born this way. It's a blessing. Like I'm not going to fix it. Cause that's how I was supposed to be born. And that is its own culture, you know, and that's fine. That's of course a personal choice. And as a matter of fact, a very famous quote by Helen Keller is, um, hearing separates you from people. Vision separates you from things. So for her, the loss of her hearing was much worse to her than the loss of her vision. To be perfectly honest, for me, it would be the exact opposite because I know I can fix my hearing, but if I couldn't drive, I would be devastated. Why are some people born deaf and how does that affect potentially their development? That's an excellent question, and there's a variety of answers for that. Uh, deafness, uh, especially people who are born deaf, it's very hereditary. So often deaf people will give birth to deaf people, and that's incredibly common, and it just it does sometimes happen. But the reason usually that when people are born deaf is that something didn't develop properly during the time when their temporal lobe auditory cortexes were developing. I'm not sure that we really know why that happens. One thing that happened once with a patient of mine that was absolutely fascinating but incredibly tragic was that the inner ear, her inner ear just didn't develop. She didn't have a cochlea. I have no idea why that happened, but it was devastating because she couldn't even get a cochlear implant. And that's just, I, you know, she, the, she will live in a completely deaf world her whole life. So they had no choice but to teach her sign language because they didn't have any other thing, that, any way to communicate with her otherwise. Wow. Yeah. We've been using a lot of terms in here like tragic and devastating and that sort of thing. And 
And I just want to point out that we understand that this is totally personal and that we're not saying that people who uh, embrace that element of their life, those that are deaf and they choose to uh, remain in that community because that's part of who they are and that's their identity and and they don't feel like they are broken and that's perfectly legitimate. That's fine. So I don't mean to indicate that their life is tragic or devastating, just that from the point of view of someone who might approach this in a different way, it might be viewed as tragic or, de or devastating, just to make sure that we're not trying to put that on other people and their experience in life. Could you speak to the extent to which how other cultures view hearing and hearing loss or if you've experienced anything or seen anything in the research about how this might be treated differently in other cultures? You know, I have, I personally haven't seen a lot of, you know, where one culture is, you know, more stigmatized for it or not. I love Colorado, but it's not the most diverse population in the country. I will not lie about that. Um, I went to graduate school in New Orleans and it was much more culturally diverse. Uh, which I loved, and I still didn't really see anything. I would say the only thing I learned about was the deaf community, where they don't particularly like audiologists. Um, they, and that's just gen a very general statement. Some of them are fine with them. Others see us as trying to fix something that they don't think is a problem. So it can be offensive, which I think is totally fair, you know, but that's, that's what we're here to do. We're here to get people's brains speech signals. That's what we're trained to do. <laughs> um, that's the only culture, honestly, I can think of off the top of my head that, you know, can have a stigma where they are okay with being deaf. That's how they were born. It was meant to be. I'm sure there are some cultures that, you know, probably are, you know, hesitant about hearing what, just like they would be men and women are different, this or that, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I was just, I was curious. I always like to try and can, whenever I'm approaching a topic, I'm trying to be very mindful about acknowledging that like I'm coming from a sort of Western or American yeah. perspective and that other cultures are going to view a lot of these topics very differently. Some issues that are considered psychological issues in the United States are literally totally. off the radar in some cultures. Our bodies have this, this tendency to like have this rule of use it or lose it. And I'm using that in like air quotes. So if the hearing process starts to break down, so too do the muscles and the neurons that no longer are being used, specifically the neurons in the brain that are connected to those that process sound. As the neurons deteriorate, other connections, relations, and functions can go along with it. And this is another reason that losing hearing at a young age, when the brain is still growing and developing, can be, can be, is an important part to emphasize there, less impactful than losing it later in life or, and or in adulthood. All right, so let's shift gears. We're talking about hearing loss. What can be done about when it? When we are trying to fix somebody's hearing is we I do what's called a comprehensive audiologic evaluation, which is a four-part test, which I sort of already alluded to. The first test is called speech reception thresholds, and what that does is we familiarize somebody with a list of words, and then we make those words get quieter and quieter and quieter until they can't hear them anymore. And that's called their speech reception threshold. And the reason that that's so important is because it's incredibly accurate for the her, uh, the frequencies 500, 1000, and 2000 hertz uh, to know where the thresholds are at that point. So, and we always start testing at 1000 hertz. So for instance, if I can get a person down to 10 dB with their speech reception thresholds, I'm gonna be relatively sure that 1000 hertz is gonna be around 10 to 15 dB for their thresholds. And so that's the first test we do. Then we do a pure tone test, and that's the 
frequencies across the top of the audiogram from low deep bass pitches into high squeaky trebles um, and that's to find out what their thresholds are at all of those and the reason that we need that information is if they've got a hearing loss we plug that information into our programming software and then the hearing aids get programmed based on each one of those frequencies and their hearing loss at those frequencies. So you only get the amount of amplification that you need at each pitch. So in other words, if their hearing is normal through uh, 1,000 hertz and it doesn't drop until you know 2,000 hertz, then they're not going to be getting any amplification until they get to their hearing loss. And okay, so the the computer in the hearing aid, uh -huh. it will actually measure the hertz, the frequency of the sound it's receiving, and it will only amplify the frequencies that are missing. Exactly. That is impressive. Yeah, and after we do the pure tone testing, we do what's called uh, speech discrimination, and what that is is we make the sound comfortably loud for them, and we test each ear by itself, and we we uh, give them a random set of words. It's usually twenty five words, and we just add ask them to repeat those back. Obviously, they cannot see my face because we don't want them, you know, figuring out the word because of, of my lips. What that basically tells me is if the sound is loud enough, is it getting interpreted correctly at the auditory cortex in the temporal lobe? And that's really important for knowing how well they're going to do with hearing aids because if their speech discrimination is pretty poor, like they only got 56% of the words correct, uh, they're going to have more trouble with amplification than somebody whose speech discrimination thresholds score is at 80%. And that just makes a world of difference as to how successful they'll be with amplification. And then, like I had told you before, the last test we do is the bone conduction test. And what that basically does is it distinguishes between sensory neural and conductive hearing loss. Conductive hearing loss, most likely, I'm going to send him to the ear, nose, and throat doctor so that he can treat that conductive component. If it's sensory neural, we go straight in talking about hearing aids because that's the only treatment there is for sensory neural hearing loss. The first uh, hearing aid was your hand cupped around your uh, outer ear. What's called the pinna is the part that is uh, the part we see on the outside of our heads. Um, and that actually, amazingly enough, increases sound by about five to six decibels. And it only takes three decibels to double volume. So it's a pretty darn good little, uh, you know, semi-hearing aid. Certainly not as good as getting a frequency-specific amplification at each pitch where you need it exactly with the amount of amplification that you need at each pitch, but better than nothing. Right, So because what might happen is those people who are missing only certain frequencies, it'll bump up everything, including those frequencies, but those those ones maybe not high enough that they're actually still able to hear it and potentially exactly. drowned out by the other sounds that are not much louder. Yeah, Got exactly. It. Yeah. And so uh, that was the very first hearing aid. Um, and then, you know, back in the day, they had no electronics in like the early, well, I must say the late 1800s, early 1900s. They had horns. I kid you not. So people with walking canes, the end was like a bow out horn. And so if they wanted to hear, they could hold it up to their ear, like the most indiscreet thing you've ever seen in your life. But they did. They had horns to then fall sound in their ear and use a walking cane. And then it really wasn't until about the 1800s that mechanical hearing aids started being developed, which is kind of when the Industrial Revolution started and people started, you know, figuring out how to make things, you know, with uh, electricity and, you know, 
battery use and things like that. And one of the first people to ever develop a hearing aid was, uh, believe it or not, Thomas Edison, and that's because his wife was deaf. And he wanted to find some way of helping her. And so he developed a very clunky, very poor uh, excuse for a hearing aid, but at the time it was certainly better than nothing. Revolutionary. It was revolutionary, absolutely. And hearing aids used to be uh, what we called body-worn hearing aids, where there was this big box that you wore on the on the around your neck. They were huge. They were like if I had a Walkman, let's say, um, and it was just an amplifier, but you know, bring it in, and then it had wires. So I had to have wires going up to my ears, to pieces in my ear, and women would like strap this under their corsets. I mean, it must have been absolutely miserable. But it was the only way they could hear. All of this was analog technology, which we all know that as far as music goes, people say analog is better than digital. But when it goes to hearing aids, it's not true at all. So by analog, you mean that it wasn't like a computer program that was doing it. It was basically just um, like mechanical parts. Exactly. Yeah. And so how, how did it amplify the sound then? So what it basically had was a microphone to pick the sound up and a receiver to process the sound and send it into the ear. And then there's like a speaker in the ear that would just make it really loud. Yes. So it's essentially like cupping the hand, but making it much, much louder Ex and yeah. putting it directly into your ear hole. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. And in like the 60s, eyeglass hearing aids came out. And those were really cool. <laughs> so you'd have eyeglasses and then the stem of the glasses also had an amplifier on it that went into your ear. Um, those were pretty short lived because they realized if you needed new glasses, you lost your hearing aids and your glasses. And if your hearing aid was broken, you lost your glasses and your hearing aids. So that didn't last very long because everybody could see pretty quickly that that didn't work so well. I would say it probably only lasted out three or four years. The ear glass one was uh, what we call a BTE or behind the ear hearing aid. And then came, you know, very basic amplifiers um, for many decades. Then they started making hearing aids that would go in the ear and there was uh, ones that were called full shells or ITEs in the ear half shells. And uh, those, of course, would just fill the bottom portion of the ear. Then they started being able to make, to miniaturize the parts that went into the hearing aids. And that's when they started coming up with something called ITC and CIC, which stands for in the canal and completely in the canal. And to be perfectly honest, I've never liked any of that technology because you're setting an electronic device into a, into a warm, moist environment and expecting it to work well. So what ends up happening is in-the-ear hearing aids go in for repair approximately three times more than uh, uh, behind-the-ear hearing aids do. The only time I ever encourage that technology is if I've got a patient who's worn in-the-ear hearing aids for the last 40 years and they absolutely do not want to go to a behind-the-ear hearing aid, or people who wear oxygen. Because often, a lot of times that people wear oxygen, they also wear glasses. And there's just not enough real estate behind your head for another device. So then we use in-the-ear technology. I mean, in the last 10 years, it's unbelievable. They are truly computers now. These engineers have developed the tiniest computer chip you've ever seen that can Bluetooth, it can compress sound. They've gotten incredibly small. What The other thing that's happened that's really improved technology in just the last few years, uh, they're all digital now. There is no such... Well, I think you might still be able to get an analog hearing aid, but probably only through one manufacturer, and that would be Starkey. And Starkey, interestingly enough, is the only manufacturer who was originated in the United States. Bill Austin was the owner of the company, and he started it in Minneapolis. He may still make analog hearing aids, but 
probably is the only one that does. At any rate, with the digital technology that uh, started coming out in about 1996-ish, at first they were called programmable and we would hook them up to a computer and we would plug in the audiogram and we would program them, you know, through a computer. Now they're digitally programmable and you're wirelessly able to program them um, in many instances. They have become rechargeable, which is a fantastic feature because instead of having to worry about your battery dying in the middle of a busy day, you just stick them in a charger every night and they're good to go the next day. So that's been a huge improvement in technology and I cannot tell you how much my patients have appreciated going from the old you know non-rechargeable hearing aids to the rechargeable hearing aids that's been a real big improvement just in and of itself they're tiny you can't see them anymore um, they can connect to your iPhone to your TV to Bluetooth devices they're they're honestly like toys now <laughs> so that's the main one 90% of people are going to need hearing aids who have hearing loss but they've also just become way more sophisticated in terms of their ability to reduce background noise and enhance speech than they ever used to be. And what we primarily fit is what we call a RIC or a receiver in the canal. So in other words, the majority of the hearing aid sits behind the ear, but there's an electronic speaker that goes down into the ear and the speaker is actually at the end is you know delivering the sound right into your ear canal. So you're getting the sound that much closer to the eardrum, which usually obviously makes it so you don't have to amplify it as much to get the same uh, amount of you know help uh, to the auditory cortexes. And because we're so able to specifically finitely pro uh, program for each frequency the amount of amplification that they need, they're only getting amplification where they need it and not where they aren't, uh, which is much better than, than they, what it used to be. So when they were analog, you're mostly just getting an overall boost in sound. Exactly. You, could you still program for like some amount of like, it's going to mostly focus on low or high frequencies, or was it not even that sophisticated? It, it wasn't even that sophisticated. What we did have way back in the day where it was analog and not at all programmable is they had what was called trim pots and the trim pots were these little teeny tiny areas on the back of the hearing aid where you could t you could stick a little teeny tiny screwdriver into a slit mm -hmm. and you could manipulate the high and low frequencies and to a certain amount the amount of gain that they could get if they had the right trim pots um, which at the time and this has been so long ago, I don't remember this particularly well, but at the time was very basic. It, it wasn't particularly helpful. You know, it just it just wasn't a great way to to uh, you know do things. But it was better than nothing, which is what we had at the time. And exactly. one thing we haven't talked about yet um, is that when you're we have this amazing ability when we're in a crowd of people to uh, with normal hearing. I we can look we can be talking to someone and even though their voice might be actually relatively similar to the uh, overall sort of maelstrom of sound that's going on we can pick out what they're saying and their voice specifically um, and that people with hearing aids uh, they had a lot more trouble doing that exactly and that's what's really become a lot more sophisticated about hearing aids is their ability to actually enhance the speech and reduce the background noise. And thank God that's finally happened because I mean, I'll have people come in and tell me now, you know, I was at a party last night and I could hear everybody I wanted to hear just fine. And I'm like, 
hallelujah. You know, it's about freaking time. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And so I that, that would have been another thing that really reduced, uh, or I guess made it more likely that people would, would be willing to have hearing aids. Yes, absolutely. Another solution like we talked about is cochlear implants. That is a very specific criteria. You have to have profound hearing loss, which can happen through being acquired. I've had some patients from noise exposure where it got so bad um, hearing aids could no longer amplify loud enough to actually help them. So they had, were they standing next to a jet as it took off? You know, it's crazy. Um, I'm sure it varies by region, but in Colorado, uh, these are elevator workers. And I saw three of them, all of which were past retirement and needed cochlear implants. And I said, what on earth are you guys using that is loud enough to do this. They said there were these like compressors and motors and they'd be in the elevator. So you can think of the reverberation of this machine in a metal box. And all of these gentlemen worked there for 30 to 40 years. So all of that, no ear protection. I mean, it was terrible. The the hearing aid that would normally put it, it can't even push the volume that would be needed for them to be able to like benefit from that technology. Right. And the reason that they want that to be the criteria with a cochlear implant is what happens with the cochlear implant is that they actually open up the mastoid bone and they hollow out part of your uh, mastoid area and they put a rare earth magnet into that and the rare earth magnet is attached to a series of electrodes that they then shove into your cochlea which rips out the remaining inner hair cells or outer hair cells so you're completely deafened and it, those wind all the way through the cochlea to um, stimulate the various frequencies as they go up into the base. So the nerves that would normally be there, you're sort of putting in like a little a robot cochlea that, that's going to do what those hair cells would have been doing if they were working properly. Exactly. But to do that, you have to basically, you have to scoop out the whole thing. You're clearing house. So like, <laughs> so as you were saying, this is, uh, it, it, they wait until it's absolutely necessary because if they didn't quite need it yet. Like this is an irreversible thing. It is irreversible. It has an external sound processor. So if you've ever seen one, you know, some people don't quite realize what, what it is when they see it on someone, but it looks like a big hearing aid on the ear, but then it actually has a magnet on, on their bone because it is, you know, embedded in their skull. Um, so that's just a, a sound processor, then converting the signal to the electronic signal um, past that magnet. So then they close the uh, mastoid bone back up. Unfortunately, and this is the only drawback to this technology, uh, this the head obviously swells when you <laughs> cut it open, and they can't put the sound processor on the outside until the swelling goes down. So usually for about six weeks, that person is completely deaf on that side of their head, which is why they don't do cochlear impl- binaural cochlear implants at the same time. They do one and then they do the other. Then what they do is they put the uh, sound processor on the outside and then they have to do something called mapping. Now, I have never mapped a cochlear implant, so I cannot tell you what that process is, but I know it's essentially the same thing as programming a hearing aid. But it takes more than once to do it. 
So they have to go back to that audiologist who does that mapping several times, maybe up to, you know, 10 or 12 visits. It just depends. Every person is different. So it could be two or three and it could be 10 or 12 until they get that sound quality just right for them. But then I mean, as a great example, I had a lady who, and this was years and years and years ago, it was probably 2002 when this happened, but she had gotten so profoundly deaf that in order for me to communicate with her, I just had to write everything down on a piece of paper. And I had finally talked her into a cochlear implant and the only reason she decided to do it was because she found out Medicare would pay for it and she had thought she'd have to pay for it herself and she was wanting to save as much of her money for her kids after she died as possible. So once she found out she wasn't going to have to pay for it, she went and got it done. And she came into my office about three or four months after she'd had that cochlear implant and we were standing as far away from uh, each other as you and I are sitting right now. So we were sitting about three to four feet away from each other or about a meter for our metric friends. And having a completely normal conversation where I didn't have to raise my voice at all. So that is an amazing turnaround for somebody who was in that situation. So cochlear implants can be an absolute miracle for people who are in that severe to profound range. I will tell you, I've had two people where the cochlear implant failed. I didn't even know that was possible until it happened to my first patient, and I felt terrible about it. So thank God they only did do one ear at a time, because if it fails, that person would be screwed if you'd done them both at the same time. What does failure mean in this case? Um, Basically what it means is it just doesn't work for them. They just can't get it right, and they can't get used to the sound quality, because the sound quality isn't the same as it is through a hearing aid or obviously normal hearing. The way it's been described to me is it's a little bit robotic, um, so it, it, it's kind of like when somebody loses their larynx and they have to do, use those uh, voice boxes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a robotic sound that they make. That's just what this, the world sounds like from the, in that ear now? Yeah. It is not so I found a, a YouTube video that I'm going to put a link to in the show notes that actually it, it makes the... It describes how cochlear implants sort of process sound and gives an example of what those sounds are that and how they are different and so i'm gonna i'm gonna play that clip for you now dr vance couldn't hear this at the time because i'm adding this in after that interview but here's a clip from this uh this youtube video about what it sounds like to hear sounds and what you're going to hear is someone talking and then what the what that same sentence would sound like through a cochlear implant and so that's what this sounds like right here it was a full moon three nights ago Don't live beyond your means. That was an unexpected outcome. Yeah, I guess um, I was thinking about it as you were saying, and our technology is getting pretty amazing, and our our biology has had uh, many, 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 many more centuries to really refine that process. Yeah. So although we can do a pretty good job of putting these little robots in our ear that will do essentially what our body would do if it was working normally or, or you know working in a way that was not, I guess, impaired for, for whatever may have caused that impairment, it, it makes sense that you would then hear essentially what a robot's version of the world would be to the best of the ability of the, the technology and the programmer to make that be the case. 
do kids get cochlear implants and do they have to change it as they grow? Actually, uh, kids absolutely get cochlear implants. And that's one of the wonderful things that's happened in about the last 20 years is that every state in the United States of America requires uh, there be universal infant hearing screening in all hospitals uh, above a certain population level. And fortunately, um, even in Winnemucca, Nevada, which is below that population level, the hospital elected to do that. So it's really good that, you know, it's it's become pretty universal that, hear, that kids are tested at birth for hearing loss. Because what we have found is if we can identify hearing loss, and get, especially significant hearing loss, and get somebody into hearing aids by the time they're six months old, they will enter kindergarten as maturely developed as a regular hearing child. Would it stunt their development to be hearing impaired at that age? Absolutely. For instance, the way that it used to be is usually people were identified with hearing loss by the time they were two, and by the time they were five, they were about the developmental age of a three-year-old. So, you know, it really is important for hearing loss to be diagnosed as early on as possible so that they can, you know, get the help that they need so that they can develop speech and learn the things they need to learn, which you only can learn auditorially. Oh, and the other question I had about that was, do they have to change the cochlear implant as they grow and develop and everything? You know what? To be perfectly honest, I don't think so. I'm almost positive that once it's there, it's there. I think I think it's good to go once they've got it set and the mapping is right. There's something kind of cool called a Baja. It's a bone-anchored hearing aid. So that's for someone with chronic conductive hearing loss. So, okay, perfect. I'll give you a very perfect example. Um, you're born without an eardrum or middle you know, born on an eardrum, let's just say. But your nerve can hear beautifully. Well, because your cochlea is embedded in your skull, if you can just get to that part of the system, you'll hear beautifully. If you don't have an eardrum, you know, it's just closed off or ear canal. I've seen patients with no ear canal. Um, you, you can't get there. Yeah, and it's rare. <laughs> so what they'll do is drill and put a screw in, in your bone. Uh, it's right behind the ear. It's kind of like the mastoid temporal bone area. And then they clip this vibrator on it. It just looks like a little, I don't know, like a, like a one inch okay. shell looking thing. I don't even know how to describe it. Um, but it literally attaches to that screw on your head. You know, if you have hair, you'll cover it up. No one will see it. And you can hear through your bone. So you can have what's called a bone oscillator. Just vibrate sound on your ear. You'll hear perfectly. It's the craziest thing you've ever heard. And it's essentially creating the same vibrations that like normal sound would. It's just instead of going through the, the process of going through the air in your inner, inner or your outer middle ear, it's going straight to the inner ear, but vibrating in essentially the same way. Is that correct? You got it. Yep. That is the coolest thing ever. Yep. So those are really cool. I don't work with those yet, but I'm kind of hoping we will in the new clinic where we're going to be a little more surgical. But they're, they're rare again, but you know, that's going to be kind of like genetic abnormalities or you just always have ear infections or, you know, something where you don't want to put a hearing aid in the ear because the drain and this and that. Well, if your nerve is okay and you pop that on the bone, you'll hear like normal. It's really cool. And that'd be preferable to a cochlear implant? Yeah. So a cochlear implant is only for nerve damage. So they would never, a cochlear implant would ruin your ear if you had normal nerve hearing. So the most important message that we can give to our listeners is to catch it early and deal with it as early as possible. So if you feel like everyone around you is mumbling, you might need to get tested for hearing loss. Why do people wait to treat hearing loss? How long do they wait? What's the kind of typical time here? 
So I'm curious actually to hear what you think. How long do you think people might wait to uh, seek treatment for uh, hearing loss? I'm going to guess a decade. A decade? Okay. And Shane, where are you at? I would say somewhere around that time frame too, 10, 15 years. Current research says on average, people wait seven to 10 years to treat their hearing loss, which is unbelievable to me. Whoa. Um, and then it's kind of sad because nine out of 10 patients say, I should have done this sooner when I actually get hearing aids. And you go, I know, because <laughs> they're really not that bad. Um, there's a huge <laughs> stigma still. It's very sad. You guys are actually both completely right. It's like seven to 10 years. And I... It surprised me. I, I I would have thought if I were just reflecting on this that people might wait like a while, maybe a couple of years, but seven to 10 years, 10 or more years, that seems like a really long time to live with this. There are probably a few other medical conditions that people would wait 10 years to- Maybe the uh, dentist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm like, get my teeth cleaned four times a year. 10 years? I wouldn't have any teeth left. I avoided it for seven. Ugh. Ryan, no longer. I've corrected it. No, I did too, and it it worked out. <laughs> I don't know if worked out is the word. Mine was moderately worked out. <laughs> I had a few extra trips. That was part of what I was doing actually on this break. That's getting good. my health back together. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. So I actually have a I have a hearing test. Par partially, my research for this episode uh, motivated me to want to do this, but I've had the experience that I felt like people were mumbling and I was having trouble hearing people. So I've decided that I'm going to go get my hearing tested again and uh see if i have had any hearing loss i've been to a lot of rock concerts in my day I like to listen to music loud in my car like nickelback so. and stuff uh, <laughs> <laughs> <no>. <laughs> oh my gosh oh i signed every petition that comes around <laughs> so anyway uh, I'm, I, if, if possible, if they'll let me, I actually might bring in the microphone and get some snippets of part of that, uh, part of the experience of me getting my hearing tested so I can, I can pull that into this episode. So if not, I will commit to making up sounds that I think go on in there so that we can use them in the episode anyhow. Okay. <laughs> what do you think goes on in there? <laughs> oh, like right now. Okay. Um, Things like that. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Isn't science Life neat? Is too short not to. <laughs> yeah. Isn't science neat? Oh my god! I'm gonna have to keep all of this. <laughs> all right. So, so the good. question is, how many tones did I actually say? Because um, if you heard only four, you're wrong. I actually had 18 in there. And if you heard Yanni, you're also wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a total joke. Um, People think hearing aids make you old. They think hearing aids are ugly. They would rather say what 800 times a day than get something to make their life easier. And it's really hard to get through to some people. There's a lot of denial with hearing loss. Again, I don't know why. I think it's that fear of feeling old for some reason. Because it's never, well, I don't want a hearing aid because I don't want to hear everything. No, people don't say that. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But the research shows right. seven to 10 years on average people wait to actually do it once they know they have hearing loss. That's oh. not just like, I think I have hearing loss. It's like you can test someone and you'll see them 10 years later and they might be ready. It's not always the case. There are some very motivated people, right? They're going to go, something's wrong and I want to make it better. What do I need to do? And that's amazing. They take charge of their health and what's going to be good for them. And others really don't. So... I would say majority of people do not pursue the proper treatment 
well, really when they should. Very much definitely used to avoid getting treated. It's getting better and better. And the reason why is because hearing aid technology is getting better and better, um, which has been an enormous boon for all of my patients. I'm so happy with the hearing aid manufacturers and what they've done to improve the quality of the, of the amplification that's available. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, you sort of clarified a little bit, but if it was part of it was because it was it could be a really gradual onset where they don't notice for a while. Um, and you said that even once they know that they have a hearing loss, they'll continue to not seek any kind of intervention on that. And I was also wondering if maybe an element to that was they've gotten so used to adjusting their life in a particular way mm -hmm. that it's sort of like this is the habit they're already in. It doesn't even really feel like a change to deal with the increasing, I guess, impairment that they're, they're suffering from. Correct. So two things. One is hearing loss doesn't hurt. And two is hearing loss, for the most part, won't kill you. So it's not an emergency. It really isn't. And you're correct. Most of the time, hearing loss is very gradual. And so the person with the hearing loss can be the last to know. <laughs> you know, other family members are going like, oh, you're, you're kind of saying what more than you used to. And they, and they haven't even realized it because that's what how the brain is so amazing, right? It's a good and a bad thing. The brain can adjust very well, but do we really want it to adjust to not hearing? Well, no, we don't, but it will. It will compensate and make you as the person who can't hear think, it's not that bad. It's I'm only saying whatever. I just need the TV a little louder. It's not that big a deal. I just play my music a little louder because I can't hear it. And yes, you're right. It's not going to kill you because you need more volume, but it's going to start to affect your quality of life. And the long, you know, every time I fit hearing aids, I always tell the person, this is going to be really weird because I don't know how long this has been normal to your brain to not hear what you're supposed to hear. So you're going to get these hearing aids and you're going to get in your car and say, what the hell is that sound? <laughs> you're going to walk in your house and say, what was that? And your wife's going to say, that was the ice maker. You're not even going to realize these sounds that your brain has forgotten about because you don't miss those. And that's fine. But you're going to have to hear them again because they share frequencies with important speech signals. And so, you know, you really have to ease them in. You can't just put hearing aids on someone, put them at what's called target fitting, you know, where they should have volume every frequency to hear normal. You have to ease them in. you got to start them soft and work with them for weeks at a time to train the brain. Hey, guess what? This is your new normal. And it can be a battle. <laughs> it can be a really hard battle. There's a couple things I wanted to, to say in there that you you had mentioned the fact that um, our brain is so good at compensating for that that lack of sound. And I was thinking about, well, it makes sense because it's so yeah. recently in our evolutionary history that we could do anything about it. That up until the 1800s, all of human history, if their brain could deal with their hearing loss for a good chunk of the time, then uh, that, that had a much bigger advantage than it being a debilitating thing right as soon as it happened. And so it makes a lot of sense that that would actually be the, the system that developed and True. now that we can do something about it that's that process is actually getting in the way of effective treatment uh, a little bit but another thing i wanted to mention is you were you were talking about the the noticing the little things and just so many little sounds that are in our environment all the time that with normal hearing you um you maybe don't necessarily pay attention to but you also know that they're there and you can react to them and for people who have hearing impairment those sounds are they're functionally absent and so they, 
um, it's Absolutely. once those are reintroduced, it's like a whole new stimulus that they would have otherwise sort of normally habituated to, but um, now it's it's there. So um, I think that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, we talk about the limbic system with them a lot, right? Okay, you move to a new house and it's right by the train tracks. You're not going to sleep for the first month that you're there because you're going, oh my God, this train is driving me crazy. It's waking me up every night. And then suddenly, miraculously, a few months later, you don't even wake up to the train anymore. It's like you've got to realize that now you're hearing these sounds that your brain's going to alert to. You've got to remember... Train the brain, train the brain. The more stimulation, the more normal everything's going to get. You're going to forget about all those sounds again. And it's going to be back to like, you know, you and just like you said, we know that there's these sounds in our houses, but we don't alert to them unless we know, oh, that's a fire alarm or, you know, that's this. But my ice maker drops the ice cubes. My brain knows what that is, but I don't turn to the fridge and, you know, look at it like, well, what the heck just happened? I just tune it out so fast. And that's, you know, all just retraining the brain again to what do I really need to alert right. to and not. And if people get hearing aids and wear one hour a day, guess what? They're always going to drive you crazy. You're never going to get used to them because your brain still thinks the other sounds are the new normal or lack thereof, I should say. Yeah. Um, there's a, in line with some of the things you're saying, there was a funny skit in the movie. Uh, Do you ever see My Cousin Vinny? Oh, yeah. Yeah, with uh, with Joe Pesci and the scene where so they're like out in the woods and he's sleeping in the cabin and it's so quiet at night and he has trouble sleeping and when he gets um when he's held in contempt of the court and they and he has to go to jail and it's like super loud and crazy at night and he just falls instantly asleep because he's from New York and he's used to like that sort of white yeah. <laughs> that white, white noise in the background. Exactly, exactly. It's all what your brain gets used to. Another interesting phenomenon in the brain is how the fact that we learn to interpret sounds that we hear is that we learn them in context and in relation to certain events, such as sounds that carry more meaning than just the sound itself. They are also carrying the memory and the emotions of that sound uh, when, when it is first, when it was first being perceived and the context it was perceived in after that. So this is why we recognize words in our own language, even when they are highly obscured or accented and why we can believe to hear speech sounds when they aren't there. And that's a fascinating topic to cover another time. So when the connection is lost with the hearing, uh, so does the relation that follows from the auditory cue, but not necessarily the events that preceded the auditory cue. Is anybody thinking about Yanny and Laurel right now? <laughs> Rhino getting uh, topical. <laughs> so there was the uh, pretty recently at the time of this recording, I don't know, yeah, a couple months ago. Internet time, it's like done and over, but yeah, this, it is a recent thing and like normal. Would be an archaeological archaeological dig at this point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so over. It's relevant enough that people will remember it in 2018. I'm sure some of the highlight reels of the different social media things that happened. You know, yeah. like it's it's gonna be remembered. It, it did blow up really fast and then burn out just as quickly. But <laughs> so the there was the thing going around the internet where uh, there was a sound clip and, and some people were hearing Laurel, which is because that's what it said. Laurel. And some people were hearing Yanni. Um, and I'm not just being like a jerk because I heard Laurel. If you look at it, the origin of this, it came from a, a computer voice reading the word Laurel. So if you heard Yanni, I'm sorry, you're just wrong. <laughs> but that's not to say that you actually are wrong in the sense that you perceived it. That's just not the word that was being said. And I believe that if, if I recall correctly, what was discovered about this is it had to do with what pitches you tend to be sensitive to and that people who are able to hear higher pitches would actually tend to hear the higher pitch version of this and what was super interesting to me is that i heard this played at normal speed and heard laurel and then when it was sped up i actually heard yanni and again because when it was sped up what i heard mostly were the higher pitches and so it was really interesting to hear that those were the sounds that were embedded inside of that um that we sort of 
we I don't want to say filter out, but in a sense, what we do is we get the context of those sounds and then we we immediately react to what those sounds are in the in the way that we perceive them, even if the, someone else might perceive them differently. Does that make sense? Yeah. Super cool. Isn't science neat? Oh, my God. It's cute. I think the biggest stigma is a a lot of people in a little bit younger generations or even those baby boomers that we see now, uh, they think of their grandparents' hearing aids. And yes, they were huge and they were ugly. We call them the beige bananas because they were ginormous and they didn't work. They squealed all the time and you just see the people ripping them out of their ear or they'd have them in their ear and turn them off because they were so bad. Hearing aids are nothing like that now. I cannot tell you how many times I'll have an 80-year-old come in and go, well, I still think I can hear pretty well, and they've got a moderate to severe hearing loss. As long as their low frequencies stay relatively intact, a lot of people won't notice their hearing loss until it gets really bad because with frequency, the way that it works is low frequencies are our perception of volume. High frequencies are our perception of clarity. So if their low frequencies are still good and they're hearing everything well, they don't real, oftentimes they won't realize that it sounds like people are mumbling until it gets bad enough and then they will. So one of the things I'll hear so often is, well, my spouse mumbles and I'm like, they have a high frequency hearing loss. I can almost always tell because they're not getting the clarity they need for letters like F, S, T, V, all of the consonant sounds are in the high frequencies. The vowels are in the low frequencies. So they're hearing things like ah, e, i, o, u, and they're not hearing t, th, ch, k, s. And you know, the interesting thing is, a good example of that is, uh, people won't be able to tell the difference between somebody saying the word fist and the word fish. Okay, and so can you talk? Can you speak to the experience of people um, once you have helped them recover some or all of their hearing um, and how that changes? What's so wonderful and part of the reason that I absolutely love what I do for a living is that it's incredibly rewarding because I've had people tell me that I've saved their jobs, I've saved their lives, I've saved their marriages. And recently I got to fit a 15-year-old girl who was born with a hearing loss and for whatever reason was never diagnosed and I got to fit her with hearing aids about a month ago and when I put the hearing aids on her she started crying because it was the first time she'd been able to hear in her entire life the way she wanted to hear. I know of at least one person who said once they had their hearing loss corrected and again sort of as you had mentioned her experience was didn't feel like, you know, sure it was a little bit hard to hear things now and things weren't as clear and feel like you really had to, to lean in to be able to hear things. Um, but otherwise it wasn't that bad. And then once she had her hearing corrected, said that she'd gotten her life back. Yeah. It was like, I felt like it was worth being around again because, you know, just everything you're missing out on missing out on everything and how uh, profound of a difference it makes to just be more in contact with your environment especially those people around you you know phone calls are difficult even you know it's like speaker phone with a speaker to your ear barely able to register the conversation and now and it, you know it's frustrating for you because you were having a hard time here and it's frustrating for the people you're talking to and so you know both parties in that particular instance are are not getting the best version of uh, that relationship that could be so it's pretty cool that that, that can be returned and, and what a difference that can make for someone's experience. Well, just being able to improve 
a person's life is just an incredibly rewarding experience and and is just really wonderful. Um, And basically that's done through amplification for pretty much everybody. Um, The only people who need what's called a cochlear implant are people who are pretty much profoundly deaf and there's just not a hearing aid made loud enough for them anymore. And so they've got to go to a cochlear implant in order to be able to hear. But cochlear implants are an absolutely wonderful solution for those profoundly deaf people. Is deaf the politically correct term to use to describe someone with a hearing impairment? It absolutely is. Okay. Yeah. But there are different degrees of deafness. We have what we call mild, moderate, severe, and profound deafness. Okay. So you really only talk about somebody being deaf if, in their, if they're in the profound range. Before that, it's a hearing impairment. Got it. Perfect. All right. So if we could transition into discussing some of the myths or misconceptions people might have about hearing and hearing loss. Yeah. uh, That'd be great. I think the biggest one that kind of ties into all of this is hearing hearing loss means I'm old. No. I treat children with hearing loss, teenagers with hearing loss, middle-aged, everybody has hearing loss. It's unbelievable. You cannot look at somebody and know if they have hearing loss or not. Um, It affects everybody. It does not mean you're old. My favorite thing to say to people (laughs) is hearing aids don't make you look old. Hearing loss makes you look old because you're saying what all the time. And hearing loss is more visible than hearing aids, right? Everybody knows you have hearing loss when you have it once you're to that point of what, what, what. It drives people crazy. If you have hearing aids in, no one's looking at your ears unless they're an audiologist. No one is looking to see if you have a hearing aid in. No one would ever care or know. And so that's a really hard one to get past. It's, you know, I tested a woman in her 50s last week and just kind of counseling her like, hey, you know, you're active, you're young, you're working, you have hearing loss. This is so treatable. You're, you can get hearing aids and it's going to change your life in one week. Like, you know, she's so, it's going to, she's going to adapt so easily. She goes, I just, I'm not old enough to have hearing loss. And I said, that, that isn't a thing, you know, that, that doesn't even mean anything. You're not too young or too old to have hearing loss. It's, it's just something that happens and it's so treatable. And I I wish people would, you know, be more motivated by that. Another thing though, to remember going back to what we were just talking about is I think sometimes people also think hearing aids equal, I'm going to hear perfectly. No, here's the problem. You've got hearing loss, and if you need hearing aids, it's nerve damage. You're never going to hear perfectly with nerve damage. Hearing aids are called a hearing aid for a reason. They aid your hearing. It can be frustrating. You're going to get hearing aids, and you're going to go in a restaurant with a group of 20 people, and you're going to hope you can hear them all. You will not. That will not happen. It's not possible. Um, you're going to miss things. And so that's really important for counseling patients is your life is going to be a lot easier Um but it's not going to be perfect. You are not going to hear like you're 20 years old again because unfortunately you have damage to the nerve pathway of the brain. We cannot restore that at this point. Um, but what we can do is stimulate and exercise that pathway with proper you know, auditory stimulation and it's going to be better. Um, so that's a, that's a tough one to get past. But I'd say most people, if you approach it on the front end, then they have completely realistic expectations and understand you know, this is going to help me, but it won't be perfect. And I think the other one I like to go over is going back to the evolution of hearing aids. Like, please don't think that hearing aids are these huge, ugly clunks of plastic you put on your ear. There are some that are so tiny and can go in the ear canal. Um, No one would ever see them. And again, wouldn't you rather just hear better than 
ask people to repeat 50 times a day. <laughs> That's another big myth is people still think, you know, there are these big, ugly hearing aids and everybody's going to look at them and think that I'm old. It's like, you know, that I wish we could get past that. And hopefully we will eventually. But sadly, I think that we will have younger and younger patients because of noise exposure um, in our environment. We have a very noisy world. And so maybe as much as I don't want those people to have hearing loss, I think that in the next several decades, the stigma will change. I don't think it will just be an old person, you know, I'm old if I have hearing loss. So Well, and hopefully people like you and in mediums like this, if I may toot my own horn in that uh, respect, um, just being aware of how incredibly useful it is to get treatment early on in that process rather than wait until you've suffered some amount of almost irreparable damage. I was actually just thinking about it's like if you're at 30 years old and you decide to get into shape versus you're at 65 years old and you're like, now I'm going to try and get my, you know, I'm obese and, and, and have all these health problems from not taking care of my body. Now I'm going to try and exercise and get into shape. I'm like, it can work, but you have a much more uphill battle at 65 trying to get into good shape than you do at 30 trying to get in good shape. So that's a, I like that comparison. I think that's very relatable. So I, I agree completely. Just the younger and more active you are and healthier, why wouldn't you do better at that point? You know, I always encourage people, if you're bothered at all, try it. You know, and what's beautiful is hearing aids are medical devices. They require a trial period. You can return hearing aids. So I'm always like, you don't have anything to lose. Like you just try it and get your money back if they're not for you yet. But, you know, most of the time people go, oh, this is not bad. <laughs> I can listen to music through my hearing aids. This is awesome. That's pretty great. The only other thing I can, you know, if you actually have hearing loss, you need, you need a, an auditory signal. So you need some kind of help. Um, however, there are some instances, and we'll kind of get into this with auditory processing, where you might not hear as well, but maybe you don't really have hearing loss to the point of hearing aids. And so there's some like training therapies. Um, basically, it's this online program that we can point patients to, to say, this is going to be auditory training. So you say that you struggle, you know, in this environment or um, when there's groups or background noise, this is like an auditory training therapy to help get your brain to process better in those environments. And it's been shown to help, you know, it's like a hundred bucks and you register for these classes and it kind of compounds in, in difficulty where, you know, listen to this signal and speech and we're going to have this much background noise and you have to decipher what's said and it gets harder and harder as you pass each one. So it, just think of it like therapy for, for the brain. Because <laughs> um, that's really all we've been able to do to say, you know, there's nothing that's going to Gonna, gonna cure it. There's nothing that's going to fix this at this point, but we can try to work with the system to strengthen it. The thing that's so neat um, is that oftentimes it's the family that notices the hearing loss before the person does, sure. and they're so frustrated that they bring them in. You know, and I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had spouses or loved ones hug me and thank me because I gave their dad or mom or whoever their hearing back so that they weren't constantly having to yell at them. But you know, one of the things I also have to do is that I have to kind of train the family members to be considerate communicators because we all tend to be pretty bad about trying to talk to people from other rooms in the house, um, not getting their attention first, things like that. And I always tell the family members, if you say the person, the hearing loss person's name or you know what they're addressed by, like mom or dad, and you wait for them to look at you so you know they're paying attention, 
and then you start talking to them in the same room, you're much more likely to get the accurate response you're looking for than you are if you try to yell at them from two rooms away. And, facing the other direction yeah, in the conversational or, volume. <laughs> or walking away from them, which spouses do to each other all the time. Sure. So it really, you know, and, and I tell my patients all the time, I can help you hear, I can't make you listen. So let's let's shift to the speech jammer. We've not talked about talked about it yet. And when we went to hit record on this episode, it was actually perfectly timed on accident on this feedback loop yeah. to where Abraham was experiencing the effects of a speech jammer. Now it wasn't actually affecting you. Um, for me, it's really hard to replicate. I wish we could. But what is this phenomenon? Like, what's going on here? Well, so I know it through an app, um, I, and I'm sure that there are other ways to do it too. But the way that it works is it takes your the sound that you make as you're talking, and it plays it back through headphones. So you have to have headphones in order to do it. This is and like 2014 in internet age when this was circulating, yeah. or 13. So, so this prior is like to the beginning of the universe. Basically. Yeah, yeah. In internet yeah. time, this is yeah. so old. That this is before time started. <laughs> yes. Still in the age of the iPhone, so maybe it's like within current era, but maybe, I don't know. We just dated ourselves, yeah, long story short. Anyway, what happens is as, it, as you talk, and it plays your voice through headphones, but it plays it on a slight delay usually a second or less pr pretty quick but you can sort of modulate depending on the app that you use how much the delay is set for and what people experience as they talk is they start to stutter really badly it sounds actually super funny it would be a fun experiment to do that with uh to with ryan right now uh, i have it on my phone if you want to try it yeah no i totally will try it cool. it's most of them wouldn't impact me oh yeah oh, or, i thought you said or it I, mess you up it, some of them did but i could talk through it and I think, I don't know what it was, if it was like my headphones weren't tight enough, it wasn't loud enough, or I've got these sweet big headphones. Do you want to plug it into, oh, I, saw oh, adapter for this. I can plug it into both. Cool. I can put these under my big studio headphones. There you go. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what I'm going to ask, you know what we should do is we'd have you like read something from here with yeah. the speech jammer going. And um, I will... Turn on our uh, live stream on Instagram real quick. All so right, so we have the speech jammer right My speech jammer's run. Can you tell that it's happening? Wow, this one's long. My friend Gladys. Oh, the sadness of her sadness when she's sad. Oh, the gladness of her gladness when she's glad. But the gladness of her sadness and the gladness of her gladness are nothing like her madness when she's, she's mad. <laughs> 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 Next one. Dick had a dog. The dog dug. The dog dug deep. And how did the dick dig dick dog dig? Dick had a duck, and then the duck dived, and the the duck did a dive deep. How did dig dug dive? Whoa. Dicks dug dead and I'm deep as as a dicks dog dog dug by Alexandra Hunt, eleven years old. Alexandra, respect. I see how slow I had to say that. Oh, okay, a short one. Double 
double bubble 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 gum bubbles double. If you didn't know. <laughs> Who wrote this? <laughs> They're like slowly just getting harder and worse. You can literally in tears and laughing so oh. hard. Oh, oh I blew a funny fuse. <laughs> That's pretty good, man. I need to take these out of my ears. Ball. Yeah. Oh yeah. I can tell the ones that are funny. So like the you can feel your lips when they're like you know, and like I can feel that repeating and definitely well, and I definitely can tell that that's happening. But when it comes to the like the more slower like slurred out ones, you know, like I didn't notice those quite at first, but I'd hear them in when it plays the playback. So the playback's like, I don't know how many milliseconds. It's got to be like... It's super short. Yeah, it's got to be like, I don't know, um, 0.05 seconds, 0.1. It's like, insane on here with the... I've seen some that tell you, but it's very short delay. So you could start to hear, like, you know that you're trying to say a word and then you can hear yourself, like, slurring it. So it's kind of this, like, self-awareness all of a sudden of like, whoa, I'm not talking the right way. Yeah. Um, so I was going <laughs> to ask if you felt like in any way you could control it or were doing it on purpose or what was going on there. So... If so, like when I was reading the first passage, if I'm just really focusing on like the like the textual part of like reading that text and sounding it out, yeah, that's where I could break it. Um, obviously, the tongue twisters in there like helped intensify it. Sure. Um, your question was like, could I get past it? Right. Sort of. If, if you to it? what extent do you recognize that was happening and you could like felt like you could control it or not? Uh, I felt like I could control half of it, maybe a little bit more, okay. but like not necessarily. For me, it's like I normally feel like I can control all of it, right? right. <laughs> so it felt like a huge loss of control in uh, what I could say, for sure. And so it's interesting. Is what was the name of that app? What's that? Oh, that that one's called I think Speech Jammer. But once once we shortened the delay, that's when it really got you. I thought that increasing the delay would get you, but when we made it really short, so it was just a tiny, tiny distance between what you said and yeah. what you heard. That's when it super screwed you up. Now it doesn't help that we also introduced the tongue tip twisters at the same time. Yeah, but um, it it was remarkable at how much it screwed people <laughs> up. It was, it was pretty funny. So I'm I'm gonna I also want to try it again with uh, you know just trying to talk normally, um, talk about something because I think reading the tongue twisters sort of throws a wrench in the works and whatnot, but. All right, so that was the speech jammer, and I still have it in. Uh, we're going to go through some of the talking points. So number one, hearing is a way, Hearing is as a fundamental way in which we interact with the world around us. And although the loss of hearing can be seriously impactful, there are many ways to have a fulfilling life even with that missing experience. There are increasingly sophisticated <laughs> there are increasingly sophisticated <laughs> technologies to help improve hearing loss and I'll add as a side note here to make it hard to, to speak. <laughs> And catching it early is critical. Seriously, so seven to ten years as an average is it's just it's way too much. Oh yeah, and don't use Q-tips or ear candles. That's just whack. <laughs> 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 All right. I I want to so, put a disclaimer there of like uh, 
I'm gonna cut. We're like, having fun, yeah. you know. I would definitely like to to take the second to say why I wanted to do the speech jammer just now, and that was to, again, highlighting the importance of our hearing and the role that that plays in a lot of the things that we do, not just perceiving sound, but also in the actions that we take, and and specifically here. When we talk, we rely on the feedback and acoustic from our voice as we're talking to continue to produce sounds and to produce them with inflection and in context and to uh, articulate clearly um, <laughs> what you, what we want to say. And so as soon as you throw off some of that acoustic feedback, that affects how those sounds are produced. So if anyone's ever heard someone who had a hearing impairment that they had early on in life and wondered why their speech sounds so different – it's because they have had very little or no acoustic feedback from the sound of their voice when they were learning to speak. And as soon as you can do this test by yourself, and as soon as you start screwing up that acoustic feedback that you would normally get, you see that speech breaks down very quickly. And the speech jammer is a really fun way of exploring that phenomenon and sounding hilariously uh, off your, <laughs> your normal speech cadence. And uh, mm-hmm. but that's just again, it goes to point to the fact that these systems are so highly integrated in terms of it's not just that we have this part of our brain that deals with he- uh, hearing and that's it's just sort of its own thing that's integrated with our speaking. It's integrated with our understanding and our interpretation and the way that we uh, are able to have meaning applied to the, the context of the sounds that we hear. Part of just why we do what we do. <laughs> yes, it is. So. This is a great point to go ahead and go over any other uh, thoughts that you guys had in terms of just any of the stuff that we talked about in this episode. Just Yeah, just like a quick disclaimer on the speech jammer. Fun technology. It's interesting to take the perspective of that. I couldn't imagine my life right now. Like it gives you a give me a glimpse of like what it might be like to have some sort of like impediment there. Yeah. And props to anybody out there. I've got a really close friend that has a speech impediment and he owns it and rocks it. And it's awesome. Yeah. Um, If you're listening, props daps all that sort of stuff i learned a lot on this episode i don't know if i have a lot of other things to contribute Uh, anything in your wheelhouse chain yeah i think what's kind of neat about this is it's there's a really mechanical way to look at it you know when you talk about hearing i think that we kind of uh, assume that hearing is a sense that like we take it for granted and we don't really understand like the mechanism behind it so i kind of gleaned a lot of information from that component as well looking at like there are there's hardware and software related to making hearing happen for each person. And like if there's a breakdown in any of that hardware somewhere, then it can present some pretty significant issues that impact not only hearing, but like quality of life, too. So we ready for take home points? Yeah. And I think that that segues really nicely into talking about the fact that hearing is a, a, a pretty fundamental way in which we interact with the world around us. That, as mentioned earlier, we have essentially our five main senses, and hearing is one of those, and that makes it, again, one of those primary ways of being connected to the people in the world around us. So although the loss of hearing can be seriously impactful, there are many ways to have a fulfilling life, even with that missing component or missing experience. And what I was really trying to say there is there are increasingly sophisticated technologies to improve hearing loss and catching it early is critical. Yeah, don't, if you think you have hearing loss, at least get tested. When these systems break down and go on breaking down for long periods of time, you can actually damage your hearing more by failing to do something about it, especially because you might start to fail to perceive that something is affecting your hearing in a way that would cause hearing loss because you've lost some of that sensation. And so you might be exposing yourself to additional hearing loss that you don't even know you're exposing yourself to. And it can slow it down by seeking some kind of treatment early on. So just 
if you have any concerns about it, even if not, like a regular schedule, especially as you're getting older, to uh, make sure that you're not losing your hearing is just, it's good preventative medicine to uh, make sure that you have the ability to use this sense as long as possible throughout your life. There's just no reason to deprive yourself of it. And, uh, and yeah, don't, uh, don't use Q-tips or ear candles <laughs> because, because <laughs> they're just, they don't. And I guess Q-tips is actually a brand name. It should be, what is it? Like ear, ear cotton. swabs, ear swabs. Don't use ear swabs. <laughs> I think it's called a curette is a little tool that an audiologist will use to scoop out earwax you might be able to get one of those, but be careful that you're not poking holes in your eardrum with it. Yeah. And uh, and then ear candles are just pseudoscience completely, as was described in the episode. So this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. And it's a Shane. Remember, science is neat. <laughs> you're listening to why we do what we do. Appreciate the patrons out there, and we will see you in the next one. Oh, and tune in next time because we're going to do another follow-up episode on this topic, talking specifically about uh, the process or the, the issues surrounding uh, think something called tinnitus and auditory processing disorder. So uh, listen to next week for that. That sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be so neat. Over and out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. I don't know. I was probably going to say something there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or something. (laughs) Or or something.